Watford. Norwich City. Blackburn Rovers. Locomotive Sofia. Atletico de Madrid. Real Sociedad. Mighty Reds. Cliftonville FC. Charlton Athletic. AFC Bournemouth. Haverford West Town. Middlesbrough Ionopolis. Got be Birmingham City. Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Christopher Daly and today I'm here at Manchester Metropolitan University for a conference named Football and Culture. The aim of this event is to explore football's relationship with broader forms of cultural representation, be it songs, statues, novels, films, the list goes on. And with this, the conference is also trying to explore what is unique about football as a sport and why it inspires such a range of cultural and artistic responses. First up, I went to speak with one of the keynote speakers from today, David Goldblatt, who is a writer, academic and broadcaster, about his new book, The Game of Our Lives, The Meaning and Making of English Football. I began by asking him what inspired him to write this book. My uh, editor at Penguin, with whom I did The Ball is Round, a global history of football, once said rather jokingly to me, uh, oh you lefties, you're always writing about the rest of the world, but what about home? And I thought it over and I thought it over, and I thought I really do need to come back and take what I've learned from the rest of the world and apply it to the transformation and the meaning of English football. And so Game of Our Lives, I suppose I thought about it, it's an open letter to English football in its widest sense, to fans, to observers, to owners, to players, to the hierarchies. And I wanted to write a book that was a proper survey of football in England since uh, Thatcher, because for all the enormous number of books that have been published on English football in the last 25 years, I didn't think that any of them did justice to the scale, the scope and the meaning of those transformations. I mean, even a book like David Conn's excellent Richer Than God, which is a superb introduction to the economic transformations didn't seem to me to really get to the politics or the culture or issues of race or gender uh, in a way that I felt it really needed to be. So it was to provide an overview, it was to write an open letter to English politics and above all to you know make some serious political points about the meaning of English football and the political choices as uh, consumers, players, fans that we face. Today's talk that you gave, the title of it was England is Paradise, which is a reference to something that Eric Cantona had once said about playing football in England. What were you trying to get at by using that line? What were you trying to say about football and culture in England? Well, the rest of the quote, Cantona goes on to describe his um, scoring his first goal in English football for Leeds United and the tumultuous, ecstatic celebrations of young men behind the goal. And he said, only in, in England could such ecstasy be found. And I thought about when Cantona said that, it's more than just ecstasy he was touched by. I mean, in his um, autobiographies and biographies, he talks a lot about the drama, the theatricality, the passion, the particular qualities of English football as he found it in the early 1990s, because, of course, he played prior to the Premiership. And I felt that he captured what I think of as a thick and complex web of meanings, identities, uh, forms of behaviour, ritual, that in their sum 
are English football and that is the paradise he speaks to and I think the English football paradise that he encountered which matched um, solidarity uh, amongst fans, a incredible spontaneous performative aspect, an intensity about the drama, captures what for me is the social democratic essence of, uh, of English football, that it is born and its cultural compass was set by the industrial urban working classes of England over 70 or 80 years and that that is what he was tapping into and it is that cultural basis of English football, the idea that yes it's commercial but money should not dominate, yes we accept individual brilliance but in the end we think there is a collective and common social good these are the kind of basic tenets of social democratic politics and that is what I think Cantona was speaking of and that is what I think he captured in that phrase. So where do you see this social common good, this social democratic collectivity now? Where is it today in English football, which is dominated by billionaire footballers as well as billionaire owners? I mean, it was always dominated, in a sense, by those that... I mean, let's not have a, um, a too much of rose-tinted spectacles about the past, because, of course, you know, football was never run by the working class. The uh, FA was an aristocratic and upper-middle-class monopoly for a very long time, and worth noting that the FA uh, board uh, got its first woman and first person of colour for the first time in 140 years. So it wasn't, you know, it's always been run by um, people with power and money. I think that the transformations of the last 25 years have both heightened the importance of that tradition and imperiled it. And it seems to me that post-Thatcher, institutions of working-class culture and politics, be they the trade unions, the co-ops, the Labour Party, the broader sense of a collective and common good, um, a commitment to a certain kind of equality and well-being, have all been swept from the political agenda. And those institutions have been either destroyed, as in the case of the trade unions, or their relationship to working-class uh, England has become highly attenuated, which, of course, is the Labour Party. Uh, and I felt that football has actually imaginatively kept those notions alive in a world where it has become virtually impossible for politicians and commentators to define and articulate the notion of the common good in a way that makes sense. Footballers continue to do that. On the other hand, it operates in a world where its deepest values are constantly coming up against the opposition of the way in which the economics and the politics of um, uh, English football work. So I think we're at a moment where there is conflict between these um, two different forces and the depth and strength of that football culture I think is perhaps on the wane unless we do something about it. You know, you can accumulate... I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement for English football to have accumulated such an incredible body of stories and narratives and icons and meanings and they have managed to endure despite everything. I mean, in the stadium, we're still singing. We don't sing like we used to, but we're still singing and that under the onslaught of the kind of media spectacular and aggressive stewarding is a miracle, you know, which is testament to this is such a valuable common collective cultural treasure that we have, but... 
its long-term fate is really in question. Partly ideologically, as people become more and more individualised, more and more blasé about the negative consequences of commercialism, and also as the crowd ages, and those histories and those traditions, which have been reproduced mainly in complete ersatz formed by the football industry in its museums, that will, that will be lost. And then one wonders what English football will look like when it's gone. David Goldblatt there. After this, I went to speak with another David, this time Dr David Weber, who is a lecturer in politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. David's paper had looked to apply the theories of the political economist Karl Polanyi to the everyday experience of English football. I asked David if he could both outline Polanyi's work and also explain how he had applied Polanyi's ideas to the study of football and its communities. Karl Polanyi was an economic historian, sociologist, anthropologist, a political economist. Uh, so his work's been used by people from a wide range of disciplines, really. And I'm just using it and to try and get to grips, really, with the everyday cultural political economy of English football. I take his uh, most famous work, really, which is The, the Great uh, Transformation, was published in 1944 and for me well certainly as my research is unfolding at the moment uh, there are uh, four theoretical insights that Polanyi brings that I think can be applied to our understanding of the culture of English football. The, the first of these really is, is divided into two so you have this idea of a double movement um, and I so I argue then in, in this double movement so in the first stage of this double movement there's a socialisation of market mentality uh, so this is where I argue that f- English football essentially internalises and socialises the neoliberal market mentality uh, that was prevalent uh, in the 1980s and it's, that's used as a point of, of, of departure really to what we understand to be modern football today and the wealth and indeed the inequality that we see in the game. Uh, the second stage of that double movement is the reaction to um, that first stage by society. Now Polanyi talks about the way in which this has sort of been divided up in the, in the commons but I suggest that we can apply this directly to football with the growth of uh, fan-led movements. So you get in its broadest sense, the against modern football movement, but more specifically than that, um, the emergence of more democratically owned clubs. So the emergence, for instance, of FC United uh, of Manchester. You've got a a range, an increasing number of clubs which are uh, fan-owned. So Wrexham, for instance, Portsmouth, even Swansea in in, in the Premiership. Many clubs now which are, are uh, owned by, by fans themselves rather than in a small uh, cabal of, 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 of elites. And there's also sort of more um, sort of supporter-led movements such as the Spirit of Shankly, for instance, whereby 
individuals have sort of got together and said, you know, something's wrong with modern football. We're seeing too much inequality. There's a, there's a lack of accountability, a lack of transparency within the game. And we want to address that. And it's that's for me, represents the second stage of Polanyi's double movement. There's two other theoretical insights that I think that Polanyi brings. The first relates to his concept of embeddedness and disembeddedness. So I take that that as being the way in which clubs, these are essentially working class institutions, grew up uh, and became real cultural identities for uh, towns uh, and cities. I mean, you know, growing up, this is how, how you knew about places when final score would come on. You knew about a town by its football club and you knew about a city about by its football club, whether they were in the, the old first division or in non-league. Um, you, so your sense of geography was, was uh, sort of orientated by final score. But over time, that, that, in, that sense of embeddedness has been eroded by these self-same market forces, which I talked about a little uh, moment or two ago. And what's happened instead is that they've become disembedded from these working class communities and that they've been re-embedded within the economic system. So clubs no longer exist as these sort of localised identities, but they exist to make money. And that is uh, hugely problematic. It's created all sorts of inequalities. And even measures that have been taken to try and address the inequalities within the game. So you, you take, for instance, UEFA's financial fair play regulations. That has actually increased the imperative to make money, which has meant that ticket prices go up and up and up. It's meant that uh, TV revenues become ever more important. And it's very often the traditional fans, uh, which have been also the traditional basis of fans within these working class communities that have been left out. That brings me on to my final point and the, and the fourth uh, theoretical insight that Karl Polanyi brings is this idea of fictitious commodification. So on the one hand, like I was saying before, um, clubs have been sort of disembedded by these market processes. And so clubs have looked not to their local communities or even to their regional communities, but they've actually looked overseas to new, uh, more lucrative markets. So we see ideas, for instance, such as the 39th game, pre-season tours. It's all designed to raise as much revenue as as possible. But the striking thing that I find, uh, and again, Polanyi's work is useful in this, when we tie together the embeddedness or the disembeddedness with that of this fictitious commodification. So fans have been commodified as a means uh, of selling clubs uh, and selling football to new markets. So, for instance, if you look at the NBC adverts on say the forthcoming Liverpool-Chelsea game it won't, they won't necessarily feature Liverpool players they won't necessarily feature Chelsea players they will instead focus upon the fans so you'll see, hear Liverpool fans singing You'll Never Walk Alone, Fields of Anfield Road It'll, that's part of the spectacle and that's the spectacle that's being sold but all the while those fans are being gradually excluded from the clubs that they grew up supporting And so this leaves us with something of a paradox of exclusion. On the one hand, these clubs are always embedded. They are, you know, the grounds, uh, you know, that's that's where the football takes place. That's where, you know, we meet on a weekend to watch the games. 
But on the other hand, those experiences are being used to sell, uh, to appeal to and attract new fans uh, from overseas. So my research really talks about politics of identity, exclusion, uh, and I think that the work of Carl Polanyi, I'm not quite sure who he supported and whether he liked football at all, but his work is very useful indeed in terms of helping us to understand modern football and the cultural underpinnings of modern football. What you've just heard is a clip from Joel Rookwood's film Rio Football and Favelas, which was screened here at the conference. I went to talk with Joel, who is a senior lecturer in sports management at Liverpool Hope University, about the recording of the film and his time in Brazil. So I'd gone to Rio and managed to go to a favela. Um, It wasn't always particularly safe, but I managed to see and have an insight into what life is like in a favela, just a snapshot of that. So the film really is an attempt to represent life in a favela during the World Cup. What was the responses of the people in the favela to the World Cup itself? Because a lot of uh, press coverage has been around the way in which this is a very separate world to this corporate event that was, that was ongoing at the time. I think my impression of what the World Cup was going to be like was series, you know, a lot of people on the ground unhappy with the expenditure of public money for these mega events that weren't really going to affect their lives when what they really want is their money spent on schools, education, hospitals, um, you know, other kind of public services. So I did kind of expect there to be, you know, antipathy almost towards the World Cup and I didn't really find that. I think a lot of people were happy that it brought money in. Some people did actually stay in hotels in the favela, some people did official tours. So I think the people who were there on the whole got a greater insight into what life was like in the favela. And if you are a favela dweller, if you live in one of these communities, I think generally speaking you're happy that other people come and see how you live and see how these are often vibrant, fully functioning communities which are maybe self-policed, maybe policed officially, but they, they function in the way that ordinary societies do and, and often in, in a more kind of culturally connective way than, than many cities in, in the global north would do. So I think it was impressive from an outsider's point of view, but from an insider's point of view, I think on the whole they were fairly happy with the World Cup as a reflection. They'd probably look back on it and reflect only on you know why the squad was picked and the way it was why they lost 7-1 to, to Germany. So they'll have probably some bad memories of, of, of the World Cup on the pitch. But off it, I think, on the whole, once the World Cup had started, because obviously there was the pre-tournament protests, uh, which were perfectly legitimate, but on the whole, I think there was more positives than negatives from the perspective of the people on the ground. OK, because that comes out, actually, in the, in the film, very much so, is that you actually press them on what do you think about the World Cup kind of maybe expecting that they're going to say oh you know look at the state we live in and things like this and and nothing's been done to help us but actually they seemed really enthusiastic about the World Cup and were really excited about it. I think it's important to note that I spoke in depth really to one person right, yeah. and I think when you you know the extent to which that is proportionate would probably be limited but 
I think all we can do when we have a, a video camera is is point in certain directions and ask certain questions. And the answers did surprise me. I, I wasn't expecting to the person who I spoke to to give such a, a positive account of of the World Cup being there. And by every chance, I could have gone to his next door neighbour, and he might have given, you know, he, he might be far less positive about the whole event. So I, I, I'm not sure how representative the film is of the people in general. But from the time I spent there, I didn't get the sense when you were in bars and restaurants and, you know, travelling between cities and, and generally walking around the cities uh, in the favelas and in, you know, more um, affluent areas. I didn't get the sense that what I'd presented when I came home and decided to edit the film uh, was, was misrepresentative of the people's views. Following Joel's film, we were also treated to another screening here at Football and Culture 2014, this time by the artist and filmmaker Ronnie Close. Ronnie's film, called Serious Games, also concentrated on the 2014 World Cup, but this time focused on political resistance to the tournament. I asked him why his films invariably select football as their main focal point. Well, the reason I work with football is because I've come to find and notice a lot of communities that are based around resistance and political opposition and that football as it becomes increasingly a cultural commodity and becomes part of this global entertainment industry there is a kind of side effect where these communities are in conflict or in tension with those forces and that sort of uh, antagonism and that relationship is what interests me about football communities themselves. It's obviously something that we can apply and think about in terms of how we live in the world anyway, how the world operates today and the kind of market forces that shape you know, aspects of our lives but increasingly aspects of leisure in our lives and that commodification is what really interests me. So therefore with serious games is this what you discovered, that that kind of conflict was what you saw when you were filming serious games during the World Cup in 2014? Yeah, to a big degree. Obviously the kind of power of the World Cup as a spectacle and as a kind of huge event mobilises a lot of people around it. But there was still a residue of opposition from 2013 that transferred across into the World Cup and into the... Uh, protests that were held throughout the World Cup with very, very small numbers, but they were still present, they were still there, they were still a kind of reminder to the uh, sort of propaganda machine that was in operation around the World Cup, that, you know, there was dissenting voices there. And that somewhere like Brazil is somewhere where you really see the crushing effect of neoliberalism. You really see how the society is divided, that... Um, you know, the favelados, the working class people live a completely different life to the middle class and the upper class. And that these kinds of divisions are long-standing historical divisions there. And, um, you know, the World Cup in a way, in some sense, sort of put a sort of superficial facade of unity through the cultural allure of football but in a sense those you know those tensions were still there and i think in a way the government made a big concerted effort to 
you know, have a successful World Cup. And certainly a lot of it was equated in people's minds as to whether if there was a successful World Cup in terms of Brazil, you know, that that would translate into a sort of good feel factor that would get the the party elected in the elections in October. Uh, now, that didn't happen, but, you know, through the kind of, I guess, lack of choice and lack of political mobilisation in Brazil, you know, that government did get elected, so they've achieved that. But it feels like a sort of unsustainable situation. It feels like there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of things pulling in opposite directions, and there's a basic kind of inequality in the society that isn't being addressed. You know, it's a structural, fundamental thing that just isn't being addressed. If you want to find out more about this conference, then please take a look at the links provided beneath this podcast on the Pod Academy website. There you will also find a link to Joel Rookwood's film, as well as a link to Ronnie Close's website, where you can look at clips from his recent films. Thanks for listening.